morning. Before we open the word, let us pray. Father, we praise you this morning that the things that we have read about, the things that we have sung, the things that we have heard, they are all true. And we acknowledge before you this morning that were these things not true, there would be no reason for us to be here. We would have no reason for joy. There would be no hope in this world. And we praise you for the occasion once again to revisit these things, to think about them anew, to have our hearts stirred again, thinking about not only the cross, but the tomb that was empty, the Christ who lives so that now we might live. And we pray, Father, for those who have already believed that we would love these things all the more, that we would love Christ with everything that we are, We would leave this place with a renewed fire to tell everyone that we know about the risen Christ. We pray also for those who have not believed, who are among us, that they might come to know as we do that these things are true, and that there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved but the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us as we study the Word. Please bless us. We pray these things in His name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 20. If you do not have a Bible, you may be able to find one under one of the chairs in front of you. There are racks under the chairs. You may find a Bible there. And if you do find one of those Bibles, you can turn that Bible to page 906. There you'll find John chapter 20. And we're going to read, picking up where Pastor John left off this morning. He, he began this morning reading John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to stand together and read verses 11 through 18. So as you're finding your place there, please stand with me. And we'll read this next section here, John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, I'd like you to just think for a moment about what is your biggest problem? What is the one thing that comes to mind which, if, if it was wiped away, everything would be great, everything would be perfect? What is that thing? Some of us may be so blessed that we would just say, it's gas prices. I heard on Friday that gas was selling in Franklin for $3.45. And I was tempted to get in my car and drive the half hour just to fill up the quarter of a tank that I need. I daydreamed about buying 20 gallons of milk, pouring out the milk and filling the jugs with gas, bringing it all back to Westchester as the spoils of war. Other people may have more serious problems. Maybe you got a huge tax bill this week. Or maybe even more serious problems. Maybe you have a chronic debilitating illness. Maybe you have a, a relationship, a close relationship that is hopelessly broken. I'm an acquaintance, a pastor who has a 17-year-old son who was killed in an accident on Monday. Very serious problems. So many problems. Personal, interpersonal, national, international problems. And with all these issues, it may seem like something of an ineffectual ritual to be here this morning talking about, hearing about, singing about something that happened 2,000 years ago. But I would suggest to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ puts not only our problems, but our entire existence into proper perspective. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us of two things. First, man has one fundamental problem. He has one fundamental problem. And second, there is hope. Man has one fundamental problem, but because Jesus Christ died and rose again, there is hope. And that is what I want to share with you this morning using primarily the Gospel of John. And the first truth that that we want to consider together this morning is that man's fundamental problem, the problem that gives rise to all others, is Death in sin. Man's fundamental problem is death in sin. In the very beginning, if we were to go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, we find that God created all things, absolutely everything, and God, by virtue of His being God, owns everything. He has authority over everything because He created all things. He alone has the right to direct His creation. If we were to turn over to Psalm chapter 24, we would read this. 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Essentially, the psalmist is telling us that because God created everything, God owns everything and therefore he has authority over all things. The Bible teaches us things about God's character in addition to the fact that He is the creator and owner and authority over all things. God is holy and kind and good and caring. As part of His care for creation, He made man in His own image to cultivate and to govern the creation on His behalf and to represent or to image Him in the world. As part of of God's care for man, he gave to man this fantastic right and privilege to to have a relationship with him. In the beginning, man walked with God as a man walks with his friend. So in the very beginning, everything was perfect. Perfect harmony between God and man, perfect harmony between man and man. Perfect harmony between man and creation. But it was short-lived. We, we, only, we only make it to Genesis chapter 3 before we find the enemy of God tempting man, the first man and woman falling to that temptation and rebelling against this good, holy, and kind Creator. They rebelled against Him. They rejected God. They went their own way knowing all that they did about who this God was, knowing that they belonged to Him alone. It was, it was an act of cosmic treason. God is just, and so their rebellion brought upon them the penalty that they were warned about. God had told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so on the day of their rebellion... The man and the woman died spiritually. That is, they became sinners. Their defining characteristic became rebellion. And worse even than that, they became separated from God, cast out of the garden. You know, the the most tragic thing that has ever happened in human history is that man lost God. Adam's sin and, and... Its penalty has had ramifications for everyone who has descended from Adam, including you and me. We were conceived with hearts like that of Adam. We were born spiritually dead in sin, separated from God because of sin. I ask you to try to remember who who taught you to be self-centered? Who taught you to... Want what you want at the expense of those around you. Do you remember being taught to lie or to steal or to lust? The truth is that that we weren't taught those things by anyone. Our rebellious hearts churn out that sin as naturally as, as we breathe. And just as there was a penalty for Adam's sin, so also there's a penalty for ours. Separation from God. 
We are separated from God in, in this life. That means we are spiritually dead. We don't enjoy God as we were designed to do. And that's why we malfunction in every area of our lives. We were not created to function without God. Things only get worse because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that it is appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. God is a good judge. He's a good judge. Which means that He allows no evil deed to go unpunished. You know, if we had a judge in our judicial system who let people go without holding them accountable for their crimes, we would be absolutely outraged. Evil judges overlook evil. But our good Creator God is a good judge. Now at times, knowing this intuitively, that a judgment day is coming and that we will be held accountable, sometimes we... We assuage our consciences by telling ourselves, well, I've done good things. I've done some bad things, but I'm better than most people. The problem is, according to the Scriptures, that most people are not the standard. God Himself, perfect in holiness, is the standard. You must be holy as I am holy. That statement echoes throughout the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You must be holy. As I am holy. The problem is that nobody can do that. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, the third chapter, beginning in the 10th verse, none is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So then the question becomes, What then is the penalty for that inevitable guilty verdict leveled by this good judge? You know what? No one in the Bible has more to say about that than Jesus Himself. Here's a summary of what Jesus taught about hell. Hell is real. It's eternal. It's dark. It's a place of horrific torment. And it's what everyone deserves. You and me. That from the teaching of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we get worked up about our taxes and gas prices. We have one fundamental problem. This is man's big problem. Man is hopelessly sinful, can't change his own heart. God is a good judge. Judgment day is coming. And all of that is terrible news. But the Gospel of John presents Jesus as the solution. John presents Jesus as the solution. Now, If you've never read the Gospel of John, I would highly encourage you to do that today. You could sit down this afternoon and read the entire Gospel of John. You could probably do it in two hours. If you're a slow reader, I bet you could do it in two hours. 
John gives something of a purpose statement for his book that he's written. He, he gives us this purpose statement in the 20th chapter, in the 31st verse. He writes, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Remember that man's problem is death in sin. I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in His name. I'll explain later what it means that Jesus is the Christ, but the key is that John presents Jesus as the singular, singular answer to man's problem of deadness and sin. Jesus is the way to safety from the coming judgment. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The message is clear. Embrace the Son. Embrace Jesus. You will not perish. That is, you will survive the judgment. But reject the Son, and you're as good as condemned already, implying that Jesus is the way and there is no other. Jesus Himself, He's, he's, he's even more explicit in John fourteen six. He says, I'm the way. I'm the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our culture tends to have a problem with that kind of exclusive language. It is intolerant. And I do find it interesting that we that we champion objectivity when it comes to science, but not when it comes to eternity. When it comes to science, there is, there is one objective truth, but when it comes to eternity, anything goes, whatever you want to believe. I would suggest to you that there are not two laws of gravity. There are not two speeds of light. And there are not two ways to the Father. There is one. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to safety from the coming judgment. Jesus is the way to reconciliation to God. Jesus is the way back to the Eden that we lost. Jesus is the Christ. Now, what did Jesus do as the Christ to accomplish all of this? How does Jesus bring us back to God? How does He bring us back to Eden? First, Jesus died in the place of sinners. He died in the place of sinners. And this comes up numerous times in John. The first inkling that we get of this is in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that one sentence should point our minds back to the Old Testament with these pictures of blood sacrifices by which atonement was made for the sins of God's people. John, John was saying then, by calling Jesus the Lamb of God, he was saying that Jesus was going to be sacrificed in the place of sinners, taking the punishment that they deserved so that they might be forgiven. Jesus said to Peter in John eighteen eleven, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
He's referring to the cup of God's wrath that he would figuratively drink on the cross on behalf of sinners. John 19, verse 16 and following, records Jesus being delivered up to be crucified. Not for his own sins, he didn't have any, but for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 reads this way, He Himself, Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. And while He suffered the wrath of God there for the sins of others, He was drinking the cup of God's wrath deserved by men. Now, turn with me, if you've still got your Bible open to John, turn it to John 1928. John 1928. There's a significant portion of the narrative there signaling the sufficiency of Christ's suffering on the cross. The sufficiency of his suffering. 1928. After this, Jesus, knowing that, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that's a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. The drinking of that sour wine was a symbolic picture of that cup of wrath. And when Jesus said, It is finished. He meant the cup of God's wrath is now dry. He had satisfied the wrath deserved by others so that they might be forgiven by God. The final verses of chapter 19 record Jesus being laid in a tomb. Now, at the end of chapter 19, if that had been the end of the story, we would not be here this morning. There would be zero reason to celebrate. Zero reason to sing with great joy. There would be no churches. There would be no such thing as Christianity. There would be no hope. If Jesus had stayed dead, then death would simply have claimed another person. Sin and death would have remained victorious. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 15-17, He writes, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, if if sinners would be saved from sin and death, if they would be reconciled to God, if they would be brought back to that paradise of fellowship with God in Eden, then the one who died in their place must be raised from the dead. If we're going to be given life, it must come from one who has defeated death, who has defeated sin, and who has the power of life. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus rose to give life to believers. Jesus rose to give life to believers. Between our opening this morning, Pastor John reading that first part of of chapter 20 and what we read as we opened the Word this morning, we've now read 18 verses of the account of Jesus' resurrection. Empty tomb, the disciples and Mary frantic and then ecstatic. He's risen from the dead. But what exactly has this accomplished? 
and for whom? That's an important question. Actually, both important questions. What exactly has this accomplished and for whom? John records Jesus answering both of those questions earlier in the gospel in John chapter 11. So if you're still open to John, if you would turn with me back to John chapter 11. This is where Lazarus, a brother of Mary and Martha and close friend of Jesus, he has died. Jesus knew that he was going to die. Jesus allowed him to die. And now Jesus is going to Bethany where Lazarus is now dead, has been dead for days. Jesus is going to Bethany with the disciples intending to raise Lazarus from the dead. Look with me at John 11, beginning in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What did Jesus' resurrection accomplish? The Lord Jesus is forecasting it right here. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Just as Jesus died on behalf of sinners, such that his punishment on the cross counts for them, so he then is raised from the dead and his life becomes theirs. His resurrection accomplished life from the dead. The spiritual death that sin brought into the world is reversed by the resurrection of Christ. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplishes. Now, for whom? For whom does it accomplish life? That's the second question. For those who believe, Jesus said to Martha, Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. Now, the the rest of the chapter then shows Jesus going and raising Lazarus from the dead. And that whole thing is a picture of the benefit that comes to those who trust in Christ. They're raised from the dead by the one who is the resurrection and the life. Now, let's go back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. When Peter and John, they run to the tomb. Look again at verse 20. I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. That is, prior to seeing the empty tomb, they didn't get it. That he must rise from the dead. But then they did and they believed. And what then was true of them? What was true of them once they they saw and they believed? 
Not only did they have spiritual life, but they were reconciled to God. Jump down to 2017. Just after Jesus is revealed to Mary Magdalene, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now that's significant because prior to this scene, Jesus has only ever, in John, referred to the disciples as first his servants and then later his friends. Now he refers to them as his brothers, and he refers to his father now as their father. Christ's death on the cross atoned for their sin, and now that they have been forgiven, they are his brothers, and God, once their enemy, is now their father. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplishes in those who believe. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that there, there are some who think, I'm not that bad. I, I've done some bad things, but I'm better than most people. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum. But there are, there are folks on the other end of the spectrum, and when they hear that God forgives sinners, on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ, they think, well, I'm sure God would forgive a lot of people. But I have done some awful things. And you don't know what I've done. Some people think that their sins are so bad that even the blood of Christ could not atone for them. Consider then you who think that you are too dirty for Christ to cleanse you. Consider then the case of Peter. So bold was Peter the night before Jesus' arrest. So bold. In John 13, 37, he said to Jesus, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus knew that wasn't true. He knew it wasn't true. How did Jesus respond? What did Jesus say to him? You sorry dog, you're actually going to deny me. And when you do, don't you dare come crawling back. Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus revealed to Peter that he knew, he knew that Peter wasn't going to lay down his life for him. Jesus said this, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. So Jesus knew exactly what Peter would do. But, but listen to the very next thing that Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples. He said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus knew not only that Peter would deny him, but Jesus knew also that all the rest of the disciples would abandon him at his arrest. And the thing immediately on his mind is that they would not be troubled by that, but that they would trust him to make a place for them. And he assured these denying, betraying, abandoning wretches that he would come and get them so that they might be with him forever. 
Listen, friend, though your sins be piled to the moon, the infinite blood of Christ can cover it all. And this room is filled with people who have done unbelievably ungodly things. And we testify to you that we have found Christ to be a bottomless sea of forgiveness. It has been said that there is far more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And John shows it to us in the 21st chapter. Turn, turn with me over to John 21. I will leave you to read most of this chapter on your own time. This is after the resurrection, of course. And Peter and some of the other disciples are fishing on the sea. And they recognize Jesus on the shore. Now put yourself in, in Peter's shoes. Put yourself in Jeter's, Peter's shoes. What might we expect him to do? Peter has been so bold that night before Jesus' arrest. I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. And then immediately almost he, he denies Jesus three times. Practically within Jesus' earshot. He says three times, I don't even know him. And now Jesus has been raised from the dead. What, what, what would you do if you then saw Jesus on the shore and you're out swimming, out fishing? Maybe you and I might just turn that boat around and paddle in the other direction out of shame. But Peter had spent years with Jesus. And Peter knows the depth of Jesus' compassion. So Peter doesn't paddle the other way, nor does he even paddle toward Jesus. He jumps in the water and swims. He can't wait to get to the shore. And John 21, 15 and following records the first known conversation to take place between Jesus and Peter after Peter's denial. Look there with me, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John... Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. For, for every time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus confirmed Peter's love and commissioned him to serve. Now, think about this. Not, not only has, has Jesus forgiven Peter, but, but Jesus is giving Peter a mission to build the church That's what's happening here. Peter's going to become a pillar of the New Testament body of Christ. So deep is the forgiveness of Jesus. And you think that Jesus can't forgive you. Jesus rose from the dead to give life to believers. All believers. Now, we would be remiss if we did not consider what it means to believe. What, what, What does it mean to believe? There's much confusion on this issue today, but, but the Gospel of John is the perfect place to go to consider that question. He clears it up for us quite nicely. 
please listen very carefully. There are two kinds of belief depicted in John. There are two kinds of belief depicted in John. First of all, there's what we might call nominal belief. Nominal belief. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write down John 8.31. John 8.31. If you read through the whole book of John, you'll, you'll eventually get to this and, and you'll remember what I'm about to tell you. In John 8, beginning in verse 31, Jesus has an interaction with people whom John describes as those who believed Jesus. They believed Him. By the end of the chapter, those same people were trying to kill Jesus. You should, you should read this. People who believed Him tried to kill Him. John chapter 12, verse 42 and following. John chapter 12, verse 42 and following. Reads this way. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They believed in Jesus, but they were ashamed of Jesus. Now, here's a crucial cross-reference from the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Jesus Himself says there, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. All that is to say that there is a kind of belief that will not lead to salvation. Rather, there is a kind of belief that will lead to destruction on the day of judgment. Because we read about people in the Gospel of John who believe in Jesus. That is, they agree with the facts about who He is. They they would say, yes, He's the Son of God. Yes, he, He lived. We see Him in front of us. And they eventually would say, yes, He died on the cross. And yeah, we know He has been raised from the dead. But they will be denied by Him on the last day. When we read in the Bible about believing in Jesus so as to be saved, it is not that kind of nominal belief, that kind of simple agreement with facts. The Bible says about that kind of belief that even the demons obey. I mean, even the demons believe and they they, they cringe. There's another kind of belief and it is belief that saves John depicts this as well, saving belief. What is characteristic of that kind of belief? Well, it's belief that goes beyond mere agreement with facts. Jesus himself describes it in John chapter 10, John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They follow me. Likewise, in John 12, 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. The Gospel of Mark helps us to understand what the Lord means by that. What He means when He says, follow me. There Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow Jesus is in a very real sense to die to self. I'm no longer my own master, but He's my master. I'm turning away from my sin, the sin that separated me from God, and I'm turning away from my own path. I'm relinquishing control of my own life. He is now leading me, and I'm following Him. And His mission is now my mission. 
Saving belief is belief that follows. Saving belief is belief that surrenders one's life to Christ as Lord. Perhaps the best depiction of saving belief in the New Testament is found in Philippians 3, verse 8 and following. Philippians 3, 8 and following, where Paul writes this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's saving faith. Leave everything behind, that I may have Christ, everything that He is, everything that He has. I would suggest to you, that, that is precisely What Jesus asks of Peter in that final chapter of John. Listen to this. This is John 21, 18. Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. When Jesus said to Peter, follow me, he meant follow me into suffering. Tradition tells us that Peter was martyred by being crucified upside down. Follow me. Follow me into death and follow me into life. The New Testament records that Peter did just that. He left everything. He followed Jesus, gave his life to Christ. You can read all about it in the book of Acts. And we can believe that because the Bible is true, that when Peter died, because Christ was raised, Peter now awaits the day when he will be raised on the day that Christ returns. Peter believed. He was forgiven. He followed Christ. Will you do the same? Will you turn from your sin? Will you turn from your self-direction and follow Christ in faith? So many problems in the world. But they all stem from one fundamental problem common to every human being. Death in sin. And Jesus is the only answer. His resurrection shouts there's hope for those dead in sin. There is, there's hope that after this life, there will be another eternity with Him reconciled to the Father. If only we will turn from our sin and follow Him in faith. Again, John, John wrote to us why he, has, why he has written this book. Why He has written it. It's been recorded for us and preserved to this day. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in His name. Now, after hearing all of these things, you may have questions. That's totally fine. But I would beg you, don't leave this building with unanswered questions. 
you're sitting around people, people are sitting around you who can answer those questions. Perhaps you know somebody who is here this morning and you're comfortable with them. Ask them your questions. I'd be happy to talk to you. Any of the pastors who have been up here leading our service today, we would love to talk to you. Just don't leave here with unanswered questions. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have been given life in Him because He has been raised from the dead, then let us rejoice that these things are true and let us leave this place with His name on our lips. Let us proclaim the risen Christ to everyone in our spheres of influence. Let's pray. Father, it's a miraculous thing that we are able to address you in this way as Father, that we are able to pray to you through the name of of Christ, our brother, and the power of the Spirit who now dwells inside of us as a gift from our brother, amazing truths, all because You loved us and by grace gave Your Son to save us from our sins and You raised Him from the dead that we might have life. We praise You that these things are true. And those of us who have experienced these things, who have life in Him, we pray, Lord, that that this Resurrection Sunday, that we would take this with us, Lord, that we would be stirred in our affections for You and for Your Son that we would go out in the power of the Spirit and that we would be energized to speak of these things with one another and with those who don't know the Lord Jesus, that they might be saved from the coming judgment. Lord, there are those among us who don't know the Lord, who are still dead in sin. You know who they are. And they know who they are. Lord, we would ask now that you would be kind to them by impressing upon them the reality of their situation. That outside of Christ, they are in a horrible position of judgment. That the only thing that you owe them is wrath. Grant them, Father, to feel the weight of that. Grant them to feel the hopelessness that they have in themselves. And please open their eyes to see the sufficiency of Christ, the fullness of the grace of Christ. Move them to turn from their sin and to trust solely in His righteousness to plead their case on the last day. We pray, Father, that this Resurrection Sunday will be the day of their new life in Him. We pray these things in His strong name. Amen.